0: You can open your Bibles to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, I will be honest with you at the outset today that uh, we've got a ways to cover, even though we're only looking at these three verses, 15 through 17. There's a lot of material to get through. And so I want to try to be not wasting time and not spending too much time on on any one thing. But these are significant truths put before us today. And so without anything further, I would like to ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. And I'll ask you to suffer me to read through verses 1 down through verse 17. The context is going to be so significant today. Begin reading with me John 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, He may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Thank you. You may be seated. If you're being seated, I'll ask you to go with me once again to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, O Lord, I ask that You would be merciful to us now. God, we come to you desperate and dependent. O oh, Father, these truths are beyond our ability to comprehend. These things that exist in the mind of God, how can we hope to attain unto them? But by your Spirit and by your power, you've promised to show us the deep things of God, to take us to a place of understanding that's not limited to the human realm, but that your spirit might show us these things. Oh, God, Lord, I pray that today you would guard me from error, Father, do not let me go even one moment in a direction away from your word and your purpose and your truth. And O oh, Father, that you would attend this now, this time with your power. Oh, Father, let us worship you as you yourself. Lead us. God, I ask that you would glorify your great name. That your son, Jesus Christ, might be lifted up and seen as he is. I ask these things in Jesus name. Amen. We begin the reading here this morning with verse 15. No longer do I call you servants for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all that I've heard from my father. I have made known to you. I've titled the sermon this morning, Unconditional Love. There are many things I could have titled this. I could have looked at the unconditional love of God for his friends rather than servants. But that just seemed a little bit too long. So we'll just go with this unconditional love. You'll recall last week we were focusing primarily on verses 12 through 14, we looked at those verses considering the commandment of God to love one another as he has loved us and looked at the great love of Christ on the cross. And we saw that our relationship to him as friends is hinged upon his work in us and not anything according to our labors. Now, the interesting thing to me in our text today is that we kind of reach a crescendo of sorts. We've looked at a number of significant truths beginning in the in the first verse of chapter 15, which is why I had you stand to read from there. And here in our text today, we're going to see all those things culminate. All the building that we've been doing in the weeks past is coming to a head here today. And so in light of those brief introductory thoughts, consider with me the first part of this. Jesus says, no longer do I call you servants. The first thing I want you to notice is that Jesus is contrasting between being a servant and being a friend. Okay? Now, also it's important for us to know the Greek word for servant here is doulos. That's the Greek word used here for servant. Do you know what doulos means in the Greek? It is a slave. A slave. Jesus is basically saying, no longer do I call you slaves. Now, we want to be very careful at this point. Because Jesus is intentionally drawing a distinction between slaves and friends, but it's in our context. And yet Jesus himself has already set forth eternal, unchanging truths concerning the necessity of being a servant and a slave. And furthermore, he's going to go on, even in this same chapter, to refer to the disciples again as servants. And so when Jesus says, no longer do I call you servants, what does he mean? For example... In Luke chapter 16, verse 13, Jesus says, No servant can serve two masters. For he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And implied in that is, you're going to be someone's servant. You're either going to be a slave of sin or a slave of Christ, the Scripture puts it. So this idea of being a servant, we are in fact servants and slaves. Jesus goes on and Chapter 15, the first part of verse 20. And he says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. So in a very real and biblical sense, we are yet still servants of Christ, are we not? We we must be. We're supposed to be serving and living unto him. Well, what does Jesus mean when he says, no longer do I call you servants? The Apostle Paul seemed to have a, a similar mindset towards this idea of a servant or a slave. I think Paul's favorite description of himself was a slave of Christ. In Romans chapter one and verse one, he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, a doulos, a slave of Christ Jesus. That's what Paul says about himself. In Galatians one and verse 10, Paul writes to the Galatian church and says, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So absolutely, most definitely, we are supposed to be servants or slaves. And it remains appropriate. And not only appropriate, if you're not a slave of Christ, let me suggest to you that you are not born again. If your entire life is not marked by Jesus as your master, then do you know Him at all? The point that I'm making to you is that Jesus using this this terminology of you no longer being a servant has a very specific meaning in the context. Why does Jesus say this? What's the distinction here? Well, consider the context of John 15. I read for you from John 15. How many references did you hear and see just today? Even just now, how much have you seen about fruit bearing and commandment keeping in the context of a vineyard? You see my point in saying this? Jesus has been, all that He's been saying is contained within this necessity of fruit bearing. If you're not bearing fruit, you're cut off and thrown into the fire. If you're not keeping His commandments, you're not one of His friends. And in light of that context, that's what makes this reference to you no longer being called servants so important. You see this, all of this fruit bearing and all of this commandment keeping comes to us in the context of a vineyard. With God the Father being the vine dresser. And so what Jesus is essentially saying is that you're not merely a slave working in the vineyard. Do you see the point in the immediate context? He's saying you're not some hired servant who's laboring for a wage. And that would have been earth-shattering truth to a Jewish person in this day, because the, the majority of them, and And this same mindset, I believe, is carried into our day to day. The majority of people think the way you have access to God is by working. It's by slavery. It's by bondage. And that only leads to death. As a matter of fact, if here today you are one who is laboring, striving unto God, toiling under your own empty efforts, you are going to die in your sin if you remain Doing that. If you continue until your dying day seeking to please God as a slave, you're going to go under his judgment on the last day. I want to illustrate this, this distinction, and it's beautiful how this unfolds in our text today, but bear with me some reading, further reading from the book of Genesis. You can take these down or turn there with me to Genesis chapter 16. Why is it so important? That Jesus says you are no longer servants. You're no longer slaves in all that he's been saying. Why is that so significant? Genesis chapter 16. I want to read with you the first six verses of Genesis 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarah said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarah, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarah dealt harshly with her and she fled from her. What's going on there in this context of Genesis 16. God's come to Abram. He's called him out of Ur of the Chaldeans. He's told him he's going to make him a a mighty nation of him. Abram is getting older in age. God says, I'm making you a promise and a covenant, Abraham. You're going to be the father of many. I'm going to give you many descendants. And over time, Abram and his wife begin to think, well, maybe God needs our help. I mean, God told us that this is going to happen, but maybe he's just waiting on us to initiate it. Maybe he's just waiting on us to contribute some of our own labor. So Sarah concocts this idea, we'll send Hagar in. And this is the result. Even in the midst of this, she bears this child and there's that contempt. Look forward with me from there to the next chapter, 17, beginning at verse 15. Genesis 17, 15, and God said to Abraham, As for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarah, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. You follow the story here. They decide we're going to have a child in our own efforts. We're going to bypass God's promise and we're going to work for it. We're going to make the blessing of God conditioned on our ability to bring it about. That's the picture of this story. And even here, Abraham's saying, Well, we already have a son. I mean, we've, we've already done it, God. Isn't our work good enough? Isn't our ability to bring this promise about good enough? God says, No. No, it's going to be through Sarah. It's going to be according to the original promise that I made to you, not something you've concocted for yourself. Abraham. And then fast forward again to chapter 21, Genesis chapter 21. Look with me at the first 12 verses. And Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. You see what's going on here. We're going to look later on at how Paul interacts with that reality in our context today. But get this picture. They're trying to accomplish what God promised through their fleshly endeavors. God says, no, I've made a promise. It's going to happen in this way. And the reality is God's promise was absolutely impossible according to the flesh. She's past the years of bearing children. And so much so that whenever they hear the message that God's going to do this, they laugh. It's impossible. It's impossible. You know what Isaac means? Laughter. It's what it means. Name your child laughter because you laughed at God as if he couldn't do this impossible thing. And I heard a man one time say that every Christian's name is Isaac. He suggests that it's utterly impossible for us to be saved apart from this supernatural work of God. But the distinction that we're seeing in these two sets Consider the differences between Isaac and Ishmael. The difference is that you see, God accomplishes his purpose, he doesn't. And so, the main difference between Ishmael and Isaac is the difference between working to accomplish God's purpose yourself and trusting God to fulfill his promise. Ishmael was born of a slave woman according to Abraham's feeble efforts, Isaac was born supernaturally by God. According to promise. John chapter 8 verses 34 through 35. Jesus answered them. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. And as we're seeing, this Ishmael represents that of a slave, of a servant who's there according to the work that they provide. And, And Jesus tells us in John 8, it's not your working. You need something more than being a slave. You need to be a son. That's why it's so significant that he says, no longer do I call you slaves. No longer do I call you servants. Slaves, those who are trying to please God themselves, they only ever sin. Anything done apart from faith is sin. And if you do something trusting it's going to make you right before God, that's sin. And those who are enslaved to their own futile attempts to be righteous are going to be cast out. They will be. The next part of our text in verse 15, he goes on. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. You see, a slave or a hired servant, they're not privy to the goings on, the long term plans of the owner of the vineyard. The hireling, the hired hand, the slave, they show up each day. They work for their own gain, but they don't understand what the master is actually doing. And this is very significant. This contrasts Christianity with all the mystery religions in the world. Those who are left blindly hoping in hope, essentially. You see, we who are Christians, we don't look at hard providences as though they were cosmic accidents. We're not looking at God's hand in my life and saying, well, there's really must not be any purpose or meaning in it. The servant does not know what his master is doing. We who are no longer servants have been Told some stuff. We've been brought in as it were. And God Himself has spoken and communicated to us. You see, not only has God told us. That the Master has revealed His purpose to us. Who are not merely slaves. But we've been brought into and shown what His purpose is. And how He's accomplishing this purpose in the world. Now, at this point, what we're talking about is a knowledge of God. That, that's what theology is, the study of God, knowing God's character in his word. And we, we sometimes people develop an attitude towards theology or high doctrine as though it's irrelevant or insignificant. That understanding the deep things of God is just, well, it's OK for some people, but it's really not that good for others. You see, they might be prepared to argue and say, wasn't well, it? Isn't it childlike faith that saves us? Indeed, it surely is. And yet, one glorious advantage of of having Christ is that we're brought into this inner circle and it has been granted us to understand what the Father is doing in the world and how He's doing it. Listen to this from 1 Corinthians 2, verses 9 and 10. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. You see, that which was formerly hidden and concealed has been made known and revealed. And not just the the beginning stuff, but the deep things of God. The deep things of God. And God has not promised to reveal these deep things to impersonal slaves that have no intimacy with Him. This knowledge that's given to us is based on our union to Him by the Spirit. That's where this understanding comes from. The slave, the servant, they don't know what the master's doing. He says, but I have called you friends. I've called you friends. Now here we begin to see the contrast that Jesus makes between the idea of a servant or a slave and a friend. And this isn't a new thought. If you'll recall, you just have to look the last two verses we covered. And John 15, verses 13 and 14, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. So Jesus says, the opposite of a servant is a friend. Now, at this point, it is vitally important that we understand that when Jesus says friends, He's not merely referring to some casual appreciation. He's not saying you're my acquaintances. And he's not even referring to a close bond of affection and fellowship. That's not primarily what he's communicating here. How do we know that? How do, what right do I have to take this word friend and tell you that it doesn't mean just friend? Well, would you like to know what the Greek word that's translated friend here is? It's philia. Philia. That's this is a form of a Greek word for love, phileo. Now you might recognize the name, this name Philia or Phileo from the current city, Philadelphia. What does Philadelphia mean? The city of brotherly love. You see, when we come to understand when Jesus says friend here, it does mean he is a friend to sinners, but what it means is more than just a friend. It's a relationship, a familial tie. This is a familial, brotherly kind of friend. And when you come to see that, you'll see that the difference, that there's something incredibly different between being serving in a vineyard as an unrelated, uninvested servant and being in the vineyard as a friend, as one with these brotherly affections, one who's actually been made a part of the family. What Jesus is actually essentially saying to them is that they aren't in the vineyard because of their working as slaves They're there because they have been made sons. Now flip forward briefly with me to Galatians chapter 4. Don't take my word for these things. Paul works it out much more clearly than I am, I believe. Look with me at Galatians chapter 4. And keep in mind that that what we read about Sarah and Hagar. Galatians chapter 4, begin reading in verse 1. So that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons. God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying. Abba father. So you are no longer a slave. But a son. And if a son. Then an heir through God. Continue reading. Look forward with me. To verse 21 of Galatians chapter 4. He says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. But just as at the time when he was born according to the flesh, persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Do you see where this is going? Do you see what it means that you're not a servant? You're not a child of the slave woman. Now, God had his own providential protection and and help for Hagar. He's a merciful God. But the picture that we see in this text is that those who are servants, those who are according to the flesh, here's an easy way to understand this. If you think that you're connected to God because of any endeavor of your flesh, you're going to be cast out. It's the promise. It's the promise given. Those who are children of... The promise we stand as children of the promise we sing our existence in the kingdom of God, our relationship to God, our union with Christ, the forgiveness of our sins, the fruit that we bear and the commandments that we keep are all the result of having been adopted as sons and daughters. And this is what's so unique about this message is that it's so important that you're called a friend with brotherly and familial ties is that it is through this one and only Son that we're accepted and received. That's the message, not the labors of your hands. In the last part of verse 15, he says, For all that have heard from my Father, all that I've heard from my Father, I've made known to you. Here's what's interesting. He starts this last part off with the word for. For all that I have heard from my Father. Well, the first thing that, that what does that tell us? Why does he say for all that I have heard from my father? Well, the first thing is it's telling us that everything that follows here is a proof of what Jesus has been saying about us not being servants any longer. And second is that what follows is an evidence that we ourselves have been made to be friends and not servants. Is that confusing to you? Listen to it again. Let me break this down. Let me clarify the first thing. The fact that Jesus has declared to these disciples all that the father had made known to him is proof that he's not treating them as slaves. He's not treating them as servants. He's treating them as friends, as brothers. That's the first thing, as co-heirs. And in addition to this, the second thing is the fact that they had come to know and understand to some degree was an evidence that they truly were friends and co-heirs. You see the distinction in the first case. Jesus shows you're not servants. Why? Because I'm telling you what the father said. And the second case, he's saying you want to know how you know that you're that you're not a servant, that you're actually a co-heir is that you've been made to know these things. Why do I make that distinction? Well, because Jesus proclaimed the truth of the father's words to many people who did not receive it, didn't he? There are many people today who hear the truth of the word of Christ. And they're never changed by it. They never come to know what it means to be an heir, a friend, a child. They don't know that. Why not? Why is it? Jesus told many unconverted religious leaders and pagan authorities the truth. He told them the truth He'd gotten from the Father and they killed Him for it. But to these disciples, He didn't only tell them the truth. What does it say? I have made known to you. I've made known to you. Look with me. You remember the text we read earlier from 1 Corinthians chapter 2 where we were seeing this unfolding and revealing by the Spirit of these deep things of God. Well, before that, look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6-8. through eight. This is what comes before that expression about you're going to know deep things of God. The Spirit's going to open the depths of God up to you. The breadth and height and length of this love of God. Well, before that, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6, we see this. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And then we went on to see earlier that no eye has seen nor ear heard nor entered into the heart or mind of man. What God has planned to do. The understanding of the father's purpose comes to us as it's been made known to us by the spirit of God, by the word of his son. There's all the difference in the world between merely hearing The truth. And having the truth imparted and made known to you. Let me ask you here today. Are you one who has heard the truth? Or are you one that the Spirit of God has made the truth known to you? There is, there is an eternally significant difference. John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me. And so we ask, how then is it? That a person becomes a friend rather than a slave. How is it? You you see, the scriptures are telling us that it's impossible for you to know and understand this without the spirit giving you this knowledge. This it's beyond understanding without the spirit's work in you. Then how is it that these things become known to us? How is it that they're made known to us? Verse 16, he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, He may give it to you. Our first emphasis here, the explanation for how it is that Jesus has made known to those who know these things in a way that other people don't know. He says it's because I have chosen you. It's not because of your anything. It's I chose you. Now, having grounded ourselves in the context of John 15, we've come to understand that it is absolutely impossible, that what must happen to us is not something we can make happen. And we see that we must not only hear with deaf ears, but have the truth made known to us. And in light of that, Jesus words here shouldn't surprise us. Whenever he's been telling us all these things apart from me, you can do nothing. Then he says, well, you did not choose me. So, wait, whenever you set apart from me, you could do nothing. You meant everything like even choosing you can't do that without you. Yeah, Jesus says you did not choose me, but I chose you. It shouldn't surprise us when we see those things. You see, our laboring f- perfectly fits in the context of Jesus saying you're not a servant anymore. Our laboring could could not save us any more than Abraham's labors to conceive through Hagar. Could produce a child of promise. Hagar. Abraham's labors. His efforts with her. Could not produce God's promise. It is only by being adopted. And brought into God's family. Which is a supernatural work of God. That saves us. We must be transformed. We must be made into friends. And brothers and sons. And co-heirs. And we can't do that ourselves. And try as we might. We cannot arrive at God through our own minds and understanding. The heart and mind of man are entirely opposed to God apart from this. Praise God that Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Why? Because I never would have. He did something that I could not make happen. Consider this. this is, we're going to work through these thoughts a little more thoroughly, but just look with me briefly at Job. At Job chapter 11. Listen to this in light of how it is that we're supposed to understand. Jesus says, I've made it known to you. I've opened your understanding to these things. Listen to this. Job 11, begin reading at verse 4. For you say, my doctrine is pure and I am clean in God's eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open His lips to you and that He would tell you the secrets of wisdom. For He is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the almighty? It's a good question. It is higher than heaven. What can you do deeper than Sheol? What can you know? It's measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. The knowledge of God goes so much further than you and I. Can even conceive of going. Now, in light of Job's words, I'm reminded of an observation that I heard Martin Lloyd Jones make recently on the subject of God's sovereign election. That's what we're seeing. Jesus, who is God, says, I chose you, you didn't choose me. What we're being told is of God's choice, God choosing. This is God's sovereign election. Now, Martin Lloyd Jones suggested. That the Scriptures never try to argue for God's election. Have you noticed that? You never come to the Scripture where the Scripture is trying to convince weak and feeble men that God is sovereign. That this just doesn't exist. The Scriptures simply declare this truth to the glory of God. And as a matter of fact, we're going to consider in part from Romans 9 in a little while. But for now, just think of this. The one time there is an imagined person who asks, who demands of God that he explain himself for being sovereign. The response is, who do you think you are to answer back to God? And similarly with Job, do you not see who you are and who the one you're talking to is? Don't you see he stretched forth the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them? You can't even wrap your mind around the created realm. How are you going to wrap your mind around the infinite God who made it? You're not. The charge is listen. Receive wisdom from God by the Spirit. Don't be prepared to argue with God over these things. And here is my burden here today that we would consider this truth. Jesus says, You did not choose me, I chose you. That we would consider this in light, in light of our own knowledge that we have no hope. Of containing or limiting God to our puny understanding. If you find that you don't like these truths because you can't understand or comprehend them, be glad that God has no such difficulty. God is not bound by a lack of understanding concerning these things. He knows full well what this means, though you may not. And if you reject truth simply because you can't understand it, that's the height of folly. You ought to be driven to trust and rest in the one who is able to understand these things. You see, there is perhaps no biblical truth that man is inclined to hate more than the doctrine of God's sovereign election. Why? Why is that? Why do people get so bothered by this? Why was I so against this doctrine when I first heard of it? Well, I'll suggest some things to you. The doctrine of God's sovereignty and His sovereignty in salvation It tells us that we are not sovereign. We are not the ones ultimately in control. God is. It tells us that we're not God. God's sovereignty offends us because it tells us that God is not motivated to save us by anything in us. God does not look at you and I and say, because of that right there, that's why they're going to be saved. That's not the way God's salvation works. And you see, the only thing that God... Could be motivated to do. It's always dangerous to make a hypothetical statement, but let me suggest to you: the only thing that God could be motivated to do, if He looks at the thoughts and actions and intentions of men, is to damn them. There's nothing in us that would that would cause God to say, "Oh, that that's something there worth saving," apart from what He Himself has done, apart from what He Himself has initiated. You see. Perhaps one of the reasons, and this is where we begin to look and see my title for the message, God's unconditional love. Perhaps one of the reasons that we're inclined to reject God's unconditional election and God's unconditional love is because we don't really want to be loved unconditionally, do we? Consider your relationships with people. You don't really want to be loved unconditionally, right? You want people to love you because you meet the conditions. How many of you wives want to get a Valentine's Day card from your husband that says... I've loved you unconditionally all year long, and you haven't lived up to what I wish you would have been doing. It's not very romantic, is it? We want to be loved conditionally. We want those who love us to love us because of our greatness, because of our worth. And yet the love of God tells us that he loves us and that we don't meet his conditions. We don't meet His conditions. And the same is true on the other side. You see, we tend to only love people when they do meet our conditions. This is, this is the, 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 most, the biggest issue, I believe, in any relationship. Relational strife comes to this. A lack of unconditional love. Always. It's always at the heart of it. Not able to love someone in spite of themselves and their own infirmities and their own issues and their own sin. That's the ticket. But you see, the infinite love of God dwarfs this kind of love. It makes it unthinkably small. God's love. We can hardly begin to utter it. We can't even begin to really understand it. Ephesians three seventeen through 19. Listen to this. It says so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. There's a love of Christ that goes further than you can even understand. And I believe if you want to know what are the deep things of God, it's this kind of love. You notice these contexts, these scriptures from 1 Corinthians and here in Ephesians, the things that talk about deep, wide, broad, big, it's talking about the love of Christ, that which goes beyond what we typically expect. So, now, with these things as a foundation, let us take Martin Lloyd Jones' advice concerning looking into the authoritative expression of God's election from a handful of scriptures. And I urge you sit under these truths not in order to simply grow in your ability to argue or have theological precision. That's no good. I don't care if you agree with me on these points or not. If it doesn't grow you in your knowledge and love for God, that's the end of all theology is to know God. But listen to these things that your soul would be enriched by the truth of God's unconditional love. That's my aim as we work through these thoughts. Ephesians one, three through five. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. Do you think there's a better summary statement of what we're looking at here in John 15 than that? There's this adoption as sons, your sons, you're not servants, your friends, you're a part of the family. Why? Because of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. This predestinating, endless, sovereign election has placed you in Christ. That's why God loves you It's because of his son. It's an expression of his great, endless, unsearchable love. As we considered some months ago, just listen again from John chapter six. John chapter 6, listen to verses 37 through 40. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. That I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father. That everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. And no one comes to Jesus unless the Father draws them. We go on to see in verse 44. No one can come unto Me unless the Father who sent Me draws Him. And I'll raise it up on the last day. These truths, significant, deep truths. Romans chapter 9. Let the Scripture speak to your soul. Romans chapter 9. Just listen to verses 6 through 20. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Interesting that this would come up in light of our discussion today, isn't it? and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of Him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated." What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man? To answer back to God. Will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Do you see the, the wholeness of a text like ours in John 15? Do you see how interrelated these ideas are? You have this emphasis. You're not a slave. You're not a servant. You're a son. You're adopted. You're an heir. You're a friend. You didn't choose me. I chose you. You're a child of promise. You're one who has been promised to be given to the son by the father in eternity past. And that message, that covenant and promise was made known to Abraham. It was even hinted at in the early pages of Genesis 3 that there's going to be this one who squashes the serpent's head. That's the answer. It's in a son. That's God's promise. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.4 says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. First Peter 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again. To a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. From the dead. God is doing these things. God is the one acting. And these truths. I submit to you are the deep things of God. Do you have an ear for me? Is your soul moved by the unconditional love of God for you? When you begin to measure your own unworthiness, your own willful ignorance, your own obedience, your own understanding, do you find any cause within you for God to love you? You know, I've spoken with people over the years and one person recently I had a man tell me this just recently. I don't say this to demean or offend him and I'm not going to tell you who it was. But let me tell you this talked to a man recently, and I hope he listens to this and is moved to a place of peace in his soul and no longer striving to to know that he's in the, the, the will of God and that he has peace with God. He told me this. He said, I believe before we become Christians, God's love is unconditional. He loves all people the same before they become a Christian. But whenever you become a Christian, his love becomes conditional. This man believes that when you become a Christian, all of a sudden it's up for grabs and God might stop loving me someday. This unconditional love of God is according to his purpose from the beginning, and it cannot be changed and it will not end. I asked the man, I said, let me ask you, will the father ever stop loving his son? He said, well, I Listen, that's what it comes down to your knowledge of the love of God is because he loves his son. And if you have been adopted and made a son according to the promise of God, that love will never change. It won't rise and fall with your obedience or lack thereof. It is unconditional. It is in God. Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in My name, He may give it to you. The next thing we see is it's appointed. Jesus says, I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear this fruit. What is the end of God's sovereign election? Does it mean that we sit around and enjoy this truth with no living reality of it expressed in our lives? I've actually heard this This accusation and perhaps it's true to some people, but they say those who believe in God's sovereignty, the way that the scriptures are presenting to us here, that they're inclined to be lazy or to be to blame God or to not be out there evangelizing. If I went through the list of men throughout history that were the most used of God in evangelistic efforts, every one of them held fast to this truth of God's sovereign election. As a matter of fact, as George Whitfield rode a horse up and down the eastern seaboard, preaching to anyone who would listen, perhaps the mightiest evangelist this side of the New Testament, he went with the confidence that God could save men. That God could take this message of Christ crucified and radically change people. He believed that. Likewise, with Charles Spurgeon, the sole winner and a host of other men, God is sovereign and there is peace in your soul when you see that. But Jesus makes it clear that there is there is an inseparable connection between God's election of unworthy sinners and the subsequent fruit that we've been appointed to bear. God not only appoints us to eternal life, he appoints us to obedience. You see, the fruit that's born in us is according to that which God has ordained before the foundation of the world, that we should walk in it, the scripture says. And remember, before you start thinking, okay, God saved me, He chose me and set me apart, though I did not deserve it, and now, okay, it's God's purpose, He's appointing me to bear fruit, before you're driven to chase after fruit, once again, remember this. Remember that there's never Any fruit whatsoever born without abiding in Christ. This means that we were not only elected by sovereign grace to escape hell, but that we have been elected unto an abiding relationship with Jesus. You see, God's purpose in election is not limited to salvation, but it goes further and higher in our reconciliation to Christ and the fruit that is produced through that union. The last part of verse 16, why? Why this abiding fruit? Why is it appointed? So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, He may give it to you. Now, once again, once again, these things which are twisted by prosperity preachers ask whatever you want, in Jesus' name you'll get it. Be reminded these things which we're to be asking the Father for are intimately connected to this abiding relationship and fruit bearing. Essentially, what Jesus is saying is in the end of verse 16 is this, that because God has chosen us and God has appointed us that we should abide in His Son and God has ordained the fruit that we bear, that we can have every, every confidence that He's going to answer when we ask for these things. That's what He's arguing. That's what He's saying. You can trust God will answer you because He's the one who's appointed these things. You're pursuing what He Himself... Is already appointed, and so I ask: What is the primary fruit Jesus has in mind? What is to be the practical expression of abiding fruit in a Christian's life? He tells us in verse seventeen: These things I command you, so that you will love one another. In light of this context, let me suggest to you that if you come to believe in the doctrine of God's sovereign election and you come to trust that if you're prone to quarreling with other Christians, you're not seeing the end in this stuff. You see, if you have no unconditional love for others, have you come to see God's unconditional love for you? You get my meaning quarreling and fighting with people who don't agree. If I argue with the man, it's not. Oh, I wish you would agree with me. It's. I just want him to know the peace and the joy of seeing God in this way. I want his soul to benefit from seeing these things. Not for him to agree with me. The end of this is that we would love one another. You see, when we come to understand the unconditional love of God for us, how can you look at another Christian without realizing God loves them unconditionally? His love that He has for me that's so big is the same love He has for them. And I'm suggesting in our text it's meant to produce in us unconditional love for them. If you find yourself not loving another Christian because they have not met your conditions and your expectations for them, you're not loving them as Christ has loved you. And the most necessary reality if we're going to do this Is that we are abiding in him and his love. That's where we started. Abide in me. This idea of abiding in Christ. It's his love. And his love is what we've seen and what we experience. And it's his sovereign love that's being channeled through us as branches. And the fruit that's born is us loving other people. You see, we can have no hope of loving one another. If we ourselves are not resting and abiding in his love. Now in closing. What of the person who's never come to know this unconditional love. Do you suppose that someone might hear of God's sovereign election and say. Well what's the lost person going to think about that. What's the lost person going to think when they hear someone say to them. That these truths must be made known to you by God. And you can't know them unless God does it. Does that sound kind of counterproductive. Does that sound like it might encourage someone to leave a place like this and say, well, I'll let go and let God and he'll save me when he wants to. If that's your attitude here today, I would lay the charge from Romans nine on you. How dare you look at God as though he were at your beck and call as that he were the one at fault? Do you not see the same sovereign God as the one who commands all men everywhere to repent and believe this message? And further, I go further. How is it that these truths are going to be made known to you and not merely heard? You see, if the doctrine of God's sovereign election causes you to shrink away from him. I say to you that God's sovereign election is one of the greatest truths for both evangelism and the conversion of sinners. You want to know how? Do You want to know how this really comes to its end? This message tells them that there's nothing at all that they can do. It doesn't give them a hoop to jump through. It doesn't say if you'll only do this, this, this and this God will love you. It says, no, come as you are. God is merciful. His love is so big, there's nothing left for you to do. Look to him, look, don't do don't try to evaluate are my emotions where they need to be. Have I come to a right sensitivity of God? Look to him, hear this message and look to him, the one who acts outside of us. And brings this salvation, this regeneration. It's something He does to us. In other words, God's sovereignty tells us how much we truly are cast upon His mercy. Isaiah forty-five twenty-two says this. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. You know what he's saying? There's no one else who can save you. I am God. Look to me. I'll save you. That's what God says. If you're busy, disbelieving this God or wanting to argue with God, he says, shut your mouth and just look to me. Stop arguing as though you had the mind of God and rest your soul in one who's greater than you. The love of God. There's an intimidation in a message like this. No man, save the Lord Himself, will ever rightly proclaim the love of God as it ought to be. But I tell you this. Repent and believe in this sovereign God. For He is the only one who can save you. He's the only one who's able to forgive your sins because His own Son died on the cross. He's the only one that's able to reconcile you and receive you as a son. You see, any other attempt to get to God other than casting yourself on His mercy, pleading, begging Him, God, I need You. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Anything else is nothing but the labors of a slave. Nothing but the labors of a slave who will die in their sin. God's love is unconditional. But He alone is the giver of truly unconditional love. The message is... That you would come, that you would say with the hymn writer, not what my hands have done can cleanse my guilty soul. Not all my toiling strife or grief can make my spirit whole. Not even my grief can save me. God alone is the savior of our souls. And we who are Christians, we know the unending love as sons and daughters, as joint heirs with Christ because of God's promise, not because of our work. I pray this message is an encouragement to us all that we would be rejoicing in our great and mighty God. So bow with me now and we'll close in peace. Heavenly Father, O Lord our God, we are dependent upon You, I am. Father, you have been good to us. Oh, God, I ask. That you would not leave us. That you, by your spirit, would continue to help us to see and understand the deep things, the deep things of God. Oh, Father, mostly, oh God, that we might know you deeply. that We might worship you deeply and love you deeply. Oh God, I pray that you would stay among us, keep these truths rich in our hearts to encourage us, that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.